This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, Slate Plus members. It's survey time again, which means it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and Slate. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find the survey at slate.com survey, or click the link in the show notes. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation is about sound illusions. To hear many of them, we had to produce this episode in stereo, and you're going to need to listen on stereo headphones if you're going to get the illusory effects. From Slate. Something happened with the Russian composer Peter Tchaikovsky near the end of his life that remains a mystery. It has to do with his sixth symphony, the Pathétique. It was the last symphony he wrote before he died suddenly of cholera at 53. About 37 minutes into the piece is the beginning of the final movement, the Adagio Lamentoso. The mystery is this. How is this movement supposed to sound? Because if you look at the sheet music, the way Tchaikovsky scored it, it doesn't look like it sounds at all. What I mean is, the notes on the page are not the notes we hear during a concert performance of the piece. That's what it sounds like. Look up any performance, take any recording of Tchaikovsky's sixth, and the beginning of the fourth movement sounds just like this. There's a first violin part and a second violin part. But if you look at Tchaikovsky's score, neither part sounds like what you hear during the concert. Instead, what you hear sounds a lot more disjoint. And this is Tchaikovsky's second violin. One famous Hungarian conductor, Arthur Nikisch, went to Tchaikovsky in the summer before the premiere to plead with him to change the score. They had a verbal altercation, but neither budged. When the symphony premiered in Russia, the orchestra played it the way Tchaikovsky scored it. And then nine days later, Tchaikovsky died. And Nikish went ahead and changed the score anyway for all of the versions he conducted. In fact, to this day, orchestras sometimes use Nikish's scoring, and sometimes they use Tchaikovsky's. And the weird thing is, it's almost impossible to hear the difference between the two. This is how everyone hears it. The first violin is playing the main theme. While the second violin plays the accompaniment. Together they make up the first measure of the movement.
What you've heard broken down, though, was how Nickish scored it. Tchaikovsky's first and second violin parts sound nothing like Nickish's. In Tchaikovsky's score, no violin ends up playing the theme, and no violin ends up playing the accompaniment. Every violin alternates between the theme and accompaniment. Only together does the theme and the accompaniment emerge. The fascinating thing about this dispute is that when you put the violin parts together in a concert, it doesn't really matter whether you score it Tchaikovsky's way or Nikish's way. Here are two side-by-side blendings produced in mono. See if you can tell which one is Tchaikovsky and which one is Nikish. I can't tell. And I guarantee you that in a concert with dozens of violins, you wouldn't be able to tell either. So why did Tchaikovsky care so much about scoring it the way he did? And on the other side of it, why did Nikish care so much? Why would they have an argument over it and neither budge when both agreed it didn't make any difference to how it sounded to an audience? Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about sound illusions. One of these men, Tchaikovsky or Nikish, might have been subject to an illusion, while the other was attuned to reality. And so as a matter of fact, they didn't hear the same sounds when played by the same instruments in the same space. Which one heard the real sound, and which one the illusion? We don't know. It depends on what you mean by the real sound. I'm joined today by psychologist of sound and music, Diana Deutsch. Professor of psychology at the University of California at San Diego. And philosopher of sound, Casey O'Callaghan. Professor of philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. And we're going to take a deep dive into the philosophy of sound and perception by looking at audio illusions. From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation. Philosophy in story form. Recording from Vassar College, here's Barry Lamb. One possible key to solving the mystery is to recognize that orchestras were arranged differently in the 19th century than they were in the 20th and 21st centuries. The first violins were to the left of the orchestra and the second violins to the right, so they were clearly separated in space. Today, unlike in the 19th century, the violin sections sit together. So all of the sound would be heard as coming from a single section in space. Back then, there would have been a stereo effect. More of the first violin section would have come into a listener's left ear. And more of the second violin section would have come into the listener's right ear. 
And Deutsch thinks this would make a difference. She should know. She discovered something about sound perception that might explain the row between Nikish and Tchaikovsky. To do this, Deutsch recreated a simple set of tones alternating between low and high and sent it to the left ear. And then she did the same with a different set of tones and sent it to the right ear. And she played them together. So, in point of fact, the right ear receives a jagged sequence consisting of high tones alternating with lower tones, and the left ear receives another jagged sequence, but people don't hear it that way. Instead, they hear the higher tones as though they were all coming to your right ear, and the lower tones as though they're all coming to your left ear. And this is true statistically because most people are right-handed. It turns out that right-handed people will tend to hear the high melody coming from their right, even if that's not where it's coming from. But then left-handed people will tend to hear the high melody as coming from the left, even if it's not. Deutsch knows this because if you switch your headphones around so the notes are now going into opposite ears, you'll still hear the high melody in your dominant ear and the low melody in your non-dominant ear. Try it now. Deutsch calls this the scale illusion. Most people are susceptible to it. They won't be able to tell the difference between a different staggered melody played into each ear with a consistent melody played on the right and an accompanying melody played on the left. It's a classic example of appearance divorced from reality. That leads to a conjecture about the argument between Tchaikovsky and Nikish. One of these men, we don't know which, didn't hear the illusion in the same way. Or at least, he didn't hear the piece like the other one did. Either Tchaikovsky intended the opening of the fourth movement to have a theme and accompaniment as he wrote it on the page, which Nikish and no one else could hear because we all experienced the scale illusion. Or Nikish heard a weird disjoint theme coming into each ear when he conducted Tchaikovsky's version. A weirdness that Tchaikovsky didn't expect anyone else to hear because he scored the piece, assuming everyone would hear the illusion. Either way, Nikish decided to rescore the piece so that the quote-unquote correct theme would be going into his left ear... and the correct accompaniment would be going into his right ear. Side by side now, in stereo, you have Nikish's version, and then Tchaikovsky's version.
I don't know if I can hear the violin parts in any other way than Nikish's way. The illusion is so strong, I can't even find Tchaikovsky's scoring, even when I actively try to pick it out. And that's the thing about illusions. They're so powerful, you can't unsee them or unhear them once you're in the grips of one. But the mystery remains. Did Tchaikovsky write a section that no one else could hear correctly? Or did Nikish do Tchaikovsky a favor and scored a section exactly the way Tchaikovsky intended us to hear it? I think I have the answer. But first, what's the deal with hearing that we all seem subject to this scale illusion? The scale illusion and its variants are really an example of top-down processing. Top-down processing is the idea that sometimes sensory perception and inference work in reverse. Rather than take in raw information through our senses and then decide about what's true, a lot of the times the sensory perceptions themselves are determined by what our minds think must be true. It's very improbable in the real world that you should have two sound patterns in which tones leap around in pitch and that are both in the same pitch range. Your mind chooses to create patterns that are probable rather than the patterns that in fact exist. In this case, our minds through birth or experience make assumptions that any series of high pitches must come from one source in space, and any series of low pitches must come from a different source. This is another of Diana Deutsch's location illusions, the chromatic illusion. Each ear is getting an alternation between high beeps and low beeps. But together you're hearing all of the high beeps as a unit on one side, probably on the right, and all the low beeps on the other side. Your mind is telling you that something is sounding high and it's on the right, and something else is sounding low and it's on the left, because that's what it thinks must be true, based on its experiences. The truth itself isn't powerful enough to overpower the perception. The reason we can't unhear an illusion is because these inaccurate sense perceptions are no more under our conscious control than accurate sense perceptions. They really are experienced as if the world is exactly the way our senses perceive them to be. They aren't presented as thoughts we can make up our minds about. The kind of top-down processing that results in the scale illusion seems to happen by default, without any priming or prompting. But other examples of top-down processing seem weirdly to happen both on command and also unconsciously. That series of beeps is a very famous well-known melody. I'll play it again, see if you can make it out. Any luck? Well, if you don't have any luck, maybe this'll help. Now 
Now all I have to do is bring back the original beeps and you can listen again. Diana Deutsch calls this the phenomena of the mysterious melody. A series of notes played an octave apart come across as just beeps, completely indiscernible as a melody. But once you're played the melody in a single octave, or even told what the melody is, suddenly you can hear the melody from the same set of beeps an octave apart. And what's more, you can't unhear it. What's the best way to describe what just happened? Did you hear the same thing twice? Or did you hear different things each time? Once a series of beeps, and the second time the theme to Yankee Doodle Dandy. This example illustrates that whether or not you're able to grasp a piece of music may depend heavily on the knowledge and expectations that you bring to your listening experience. This is the sound of a decomposed sinusoidal wave. Most of us know that we hear sounds when our ears pick up waves in a medium, like air or water. And we all remember sine waves from trigonometry. Sinusoidal waves represent the shape of sound waves. The sounds we hear are not simple sinusoidal waves. They're more like a bunch of waves interacting with each other. It'll be a really complex waveform that can be modeled as a sum of sinusoids. I'm Casey O'Callaghan. I'm a professor of philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. So sine wave speech takes a sample of spoken language and decomposes it into sinusoidal constituents. When you first hear this, it doesn't sound like speech at all. It just sounds like a series of whistles and squeaks. When you hear the original signal, the the original speech that it's based on, and then listen again to the sinusoid, it's clear that it's speech and the words that are uttered really just pops out as evident to you. The beauty of the view stunned the young boy. It starts immediately to sound like spoken language and it's intelligible and following the cue. The steady drip is worse than a drenching rain. So this is really fascinating because it's just the same sound that's presented to you on the two occasions. Perceptually, there's all the difference in the world between the two episodes. In 1953, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein took a picture of the duck rabbit. You know that famous drawing where it looks like a duck facing one way and a rabbit facing the other? Well, he made a famous distinction. The distinction between seeing and seeing as. The image in front of you is the same. So in one sense, you see one image. But it's also accurate to say that you see it as a duck sometimes and as a rabbit in another. You can see one thing but see it as two different things. So when you look at a picture, it might be an, an image of an apple, and it's this flat, two-dimensional surface. But when you look at it, you're not inclined to take it as that sort of thing. There's a, there's a sense in which you see what's before you as an apple. 
similar kinds of things I think happen in in hearing. There's cases where you might hear a recording, you can hear it as the voice of a of a particular individual, and you can get a little bit more abstract in a musical piece. You might hear a sound as a sound of thunder. You can get more and more abstract. You might hear a passage in a piece of music as a bumblebee. The case of the mysterious melody and sinusoidal speech are examples of hearing as. We can describe the experience as hearing the same sound twice, but only the second time, with knowledge or priming, do we hear the sounds as melodies or as speech. We might say that melodies or speech are not heard, only heard as, where the mind uses previously acquired knowledge to construct an experience of hearing as from an experience of hearing. If that's the model, though, what isn't hearing as? When is something purely hearing? Lots of philosophers historically have decided that nothing is pure hearing. Everything is hearing as. In fact, there's a long tradition of arguing from the existence of illusions to the conclusion that there really aren't sounds in the world at all. All sounds are constructed by the mind. O'Callaghan, on the other hand, thinks there are basic sounds in the world. I think we have this general inclination to think of sounds as somehow less real because we can't reach out and touch them or confirm their existence with another sense. I'm inclined to think that the sound is just the thing that you hear. It's a particular thing in your environment. It's got a range of characteristics, including relatively simple ones like frequency and timbre and and loudness or pitch. Philosophers of perception divide into camps, depending on how many properties of sounds they think are constructed, and how many are perceived by the mind but in fact exist in the external world. Melody and speech go into the mind. Hearing the location of the sound also seems to go there too, because of the scale illusion. But what else? Maybe a lot more than we think. I was playing around with a number of different types of pattern, and I was hearing really very strange things. When one tone of a pair is played, followed by the second tone, some people hear an ascending pattern. But other people, on listening to the identical pair of tones, hear a descending pattern instead. These tones are clearly going up. And this one is clearly going down. I don't know how any of you can hear it any differently. But if Diana Deutsch is right, some of you are, and can't hear it the way I do. And maybe you're willing to fight me over this fact. I hear that as going up. I hear that as going down. Now this experience can be particularly astonishing to a group of listeners who are all quite certain of their judgments and yet disagree completely as to whether such a pair of tones is moving up or down. I can pretty much guarantee that your listeners will disagree among themselves as to which tone pairs they hear is ascending and which is descending. What you're hearing is Diana Deutsch's tritone paradox. It's audio's version of Wittgenstein's Duck Rabbit, 
only half of you only see a duck, and the other half can only see a rabbit. By playing tritone notes going up and going down an octave apart, Deutsch created an ambiguous sound that different minds resolve in different ways. The tritone paradox shows that even relative pitch is something that is heard as rather than heard. But unlike location, melodies, and speech, it's a mystery as to why this is true. Something about our experiences with tones are disposing us to hear things differently. The tritone paradox shows that even something like relative pitch is not necessarily a feature of the sound in the external environment, but rather something the mind is constructing for the ear. So much of our auditory experiences are hearing as the imposing of the mind on the world of sounds. Which brings us back to Tchaikovsky and his dispute with Arthur Nikish. What was it that Nikish was missing, or we're missing, about the underlying nature of Tchaikovsky's composition when we all hear it the way we do, when we hear it through the scale illusion? Because clearly Tchaikovsky had something in mind, a sound in mind, when he scored the opening. That score is reality. But what we hear, what Nikish heard, is appearance. What was that reality? What was Tchaikovsky trying to get across in scoring the way he did? I'm out of my element, so I called my friend Christine, the choir conductor here at Vassar, to give me her opinion. I first wanted to know if there was anything to the idea that Tchaikovsky wanted us to hear the opening differently from the way we do. Would it have been possible either Tchaikovsky or Nikish really to have heard a difference depending on which way it was scored? If you assume the first violins are on the conductor's left and the second violins are on the conductor's right, there's a balance difference from the audience perspective. The first violins, for example, they're F-holes in their violin will face out towards the audience and will give more sound and more clarity of sound. On the second side, the way they are sitting, they're actually facing the back of the hall to a certain degree. So their sound not only is going to the back of the hall and then out, which takes some time, it's going to be slightly muffled a little bit. So I think actually you could argue that there would be a sound difference in terms of balance. Making all the assumptions. Mm-hmm. First violins on the left, second violins on the right, mm-hmm. and Tchaikovsky scored it to that mm-hmm. arrangement. Is it possible that he wanted us to hear oh. the first violin part the way that it was scored? I think so. I think so. He would have heard, he probably would have heard it that way. It's possible that he wanted you to hear this jumping down. So a different conductor, for example, might say to the first violins, bring out that first violin, that low note, make sure it's loud, make sure it's louder than the second violins. What, as a conductor, would have bothered Nickish enough? Because Tchaikovsky was alive when he had a problem with this. Right. And went to Tchaikovsky. I can imagine. So I'm just thinking, like, when you play a line in a scale, meaning, you know, note after note going down the scale, it's easier to keep in tune than when you're jumping strings. So I can imagine it was probably pretty out of tune. 
and that he said, oh, this would be so much easier if you just played this line going down and you guys played this line going down as opposed to jumping back and forth because then you end up having to tune. Like I could actually envision someone, a conductor saying, okay, we're going to go note by note and we're going to tune these these chords, these intervals. Um, so I bet it didn't, I bet it wasn't in tune. But if a conductor scores it that way, he heard something in his mind that's different from the way Nickish does. Like, yeah, that's clear abso- to you. 100%. 100%. And then Christine found something later on in Tchaikovsky's score that just blew me away. It's in the recapitulation, which is music speak for the part of the movement near the end when a composer reintroduces all of the themes again from earlier as a kind of climax, maybe in a different key or different tempo. This is how the theme we've been hearing sounds during the recapitulation. Tchaikovsky scored the recapitulation of the theme differently from how he scored it at the opening. He scored it exactly the way Nikish did. This has to mean that Tchaikovsky expected most people, maybe even all people, to hear the recapitulated theme as the same theme as the opening. He purposely designed two different underlying realities to be heard as the same theme, leaving the actual notes on the page not for the listener, but for the conductor and the musicians playing it. Why did he do this? It might have to do with what the Sixth Symphony represented to Tchaikovsky, and the Fourth Movement in particular. It's a meditation on death. A meditation on a life of composing music that was coming to an end. It may even be a meditation on the tragedy of his closeted homosexuality, and the way it might have forced him to his own death just nine days after the premiere of the symphony. The beginning of the fourth movement is for Tchaikovsky, quite literally, the beginning of the end. There's torment. There's a sense of being lost in anticipation. Leonard Bernstein called it anguished and desperate. Yet this beginning of the end is presented as a musical illusion, an apparent theme, that is generated by a masked theme that is there but not heard. Only the musicians see it. Only the violinists hear it. And maybe a few people in the audience can detect it. But it's there. And it was important to Tchaikovsky to protect it, to mark the difference between how the ending begins and how it ends. Whatever illusion appears at the beginning disappears by the end of the movement. The illusion is reality. There is nothing else underlying the appearance by the time of the recapitulation. And it's then that the theme, in its final appearance, moves to a very different context, a different tempo, a minor key. It sets up the ending to the fourth movement, an ending so bleak and so contrary to the norms of symphonies, that even at its premiere, with Tchaikovsky holding the baton, it was hard for the audience to hear it as anything other than Tchaikovsky himself signaling his own end. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Knowing how the faculty of hearing works, knowing that the mind imposes all of this sometimes illusory order on the world of sound, can you speculate as to why we hear sounds the way we do? I think at the most abstract level, if you think of vision as telling us about what's out there in terms of uh, what's the furniture of the environment, hearing tells us what's going on, what's happening, what's changing, what's occurring, what's taking place, how are things evolving. While you know, vision might tell you that there's an object in front of you or a person, hearing is telling you something really important about what, what they're doing. On O'Callaghan's view, auditory objects then are events with an essentially temporal dimension. They're like stories, careers, and lives rather than bodies. They're bounded by a beginning, middle, and end with fluctuations we can't process sensibly until we provide some kind of order to the chaos. In this way, the mind's imposition of order, sometimes false order, on the world of sound is just like every other way we try to impose order on the things we experience over time. Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College. For Slate Podcasts, Editorial Director is Gabriel Roth, Senior Managing Producer is June Thomas, Senior Producer is TJ Raphael. Production assistance this season provided by Jake Johnson, and Noah Mendoza Gut. Visit hifination.org for complete show notes, soundtrack, and reading list for every episode. That's H I P H I nation.org. <laughs>